How many of you have ever been in a cave? Quite a few of you. When our kids were younger, Jan and I took a spring break trip to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, and it was our first time there, and we were impressed by the beauty and the grandeur of that massive system of caves. I remember getting deep into Mammoth Cave in a large underground room, and if you've been there, you know what's coming next. The guide stopped and addressed the crowd. He explained that in a moment we would get to experience what a real cave looked like, and that all the lights were turned off. If you've been there, you know the feeling of utter and total darkness. We held onto our kids' hands tightly because we couldn't see them. The darkness was so deep that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Caves can be really scary places, especially when there is no light. I am told that in the total darkness of those moments, uh, many people begin to get a little edgy. And in fact, if the lights remain off for any length of time, some people even begin to panic. Most people don't like sitting around in darkness. You see, we learn from an early age to be fearful of darkness, don't we? That's why night lights are so popular in our kids' bedrooms or around the house. That little four-watt bulb is able to chase away some of the darkness and bring a huge measure of comfort to those who may be afraid of the dark. Even as we grow up, there's still this inborn fear of, of the dark. If you hear a strange noise in your house in the middle of the afternoon, you may think, well, that's a little odd, but you wouldn't give it a second thought. But if you hear a strange sound in your totally darkened house at three in the morning, you go find out what's going on. In the middle of the night, darkness breeds fear. Darkness is uncomfortable. Darkness can be confusing and sometimes even terrifying. Isaiah spoke into a world that's much like our own, one that was soaked in darkness. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, it talks about a time when the powerful king of Assyria was about to enter the land of Judah and crush God's people as a punishment for the nation rejecting God. In Isaiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, the prophet speaks, and he says, then the Lord spoke to me again and said, My care for the people of Judah is like the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, but they have rejected it. Therefore the Lord will overwhelm them with a mighty flood from the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. This flood will sweep into Judah until it is chin deep. It will spread its wings, submerging your land from one end to the other. God's word through Isaiah was a metaphor. The land was not going to be flooded with water, but with a powerful Assyrian army. And when the impending disaster descended upon Judah, people saw only trouble and anguish and dark despair. Uncertain of where to turn, God's people sought guidance in all the wrong places, including false gods and mediums. Some even tried contacting the dead. Here's the lesson we are intended to learn from this. Overwhelmed by the darkness, people look to anyone and anything for light and hope. I'm going to give you a bit of a geography lesson today, so try to keep those, all these names and places a little bit in perspective because we're going to tie the dots all together through the remainder part of this message. The southern kingdom of God's people was called Judah. And Judah had been thrust into the middle of a war with the northern portion of Israel, the, their kinsmen, uh, the, the nation of Israel. 
So Israel decided to join with Syria to try to force Judah into an alliance against Assyria. And Judah, however, appealed to Assyria to stave off this invasion, and war ensued, and darkness descended on the entire land. Ultimately, Israel, the northern kingdom, caught the brunt of this war. And Assyria annexed the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali in a region known as Galilee. Now, exile by Assyria later enveloped all of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then Babylon swept in to capture the southern kingdom of Judah. But it came, all of this came to Galilee first, the very place that Jesus would later call home base for most of his ministry. Darkness shrouded the land of Galilee, and it, and it still envelops the world today. In recent years, we have seen the rise of terrorism and violence of every sort, with an even greater rise, sometimes in fear and anxiety. Suspicion reigns. Violence, so prevalent in many ways, even here in the United States, continues to erupt across the globe. See, darkness surrounds us, just as it did ancient Israel and Judah. In the story of God, darkness always precedes light. In the beginning of creation, we talked about this last week, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters that were, that were covered in darkness. And then God said, let there be light. And following this pattern, God has continuously throughout history injected light into the darkness. It's the way God works. Israel as a nation was intended to be a light within the darkness which engulfed the nations around them. And in war-torn Israel and in Judah about 730 BC, when the land was soaked in what the Bible calls deep darkness and the people walked in darkness, Isaiah promises that one day they will see a great light. The prophet Isaiah speaks of a time when this great light would dawn upon Galilee and the people of God, and with this light the nation would multiply and rejoice as if celebrating a great harvest. And with this light, the rod of oppression would be lifted, and all military gear would be burned as fuel for fires, and the land will be filled with great joy and light, and the, and, while oppression and war would no longer exist. But the turning point would be the birth of a child. Light dawns with a birth announcement. The fortunes of Israel and Judah, as well as the whole earth, would turn on the birth of a baby. And that birth would bring hope. That birth would be a demonstration of love itself. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan River and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniform 
uh, uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. The birth of a new king who is invested with the authority of the throne of David will be given royal names similar to ancient Near Eastern kings. Wonderful counselor, a wise person who gives good counsel, mighty God, a powerful hero invested with God's strength and representing God in the nation, everlasting father, a benevolent, enduring benefactor with people's that the people can trust. Prince of Peace, a peacemaker who reigns in a time of prosperity. Now these titles identify the function of this new ruler and how he will serve the people of God. He will be wise. He will be the image of God. He's a, like a gracious parent. He's the forger of peace. This one who sits on the throne of David will be a benevolent ruler who enacts peace and justice as God's representative. So who is this new ruler of Israel? Well, at the immediate historical level of Isaiah's original audience, the prophet is likely referring to King Hezekiah, whose reign after years of Assyrian oppression resulted in years of peace and prosperity. But the language does not quite fit with Hezekiah's reign. Something larger is in view as the authority of this king grows continually and provides endless peace as well as justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. While the prophet has an immediate word of hope and encourage for the people of Judah, Isaiah's language envisions more than what Hezekiah could provide. Isaiah anticipates a time when the throne of David and his kingdom will fully establish peace and justice on this earth, and this is something that only Yahweh can affect. Yahweh will do this. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew's Gospel, in the New Testament, he quotes Isaiah chapter 9. And he believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's hopes, Isaiah's prophecy. Here's what he says in Matthew 4. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This fulfilled what, the, what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulon and Naphtali beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. And from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew goes on to tell us that after his baptism, the Spirit led Jesus into the Judean wilderness for 40 days. It was his wilderness experience, and in the face of all the opposition that was being mounted against John the Baptist, Jesus withdrew to the area of Galilee. 
making his home in Capernaum by the sea, Jesus located his ministry in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. And there Jesus begins his ministry, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, remember, in the past, God humbled the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, but Isaiah says that in the future, God will honor this region of Galilee. Galilee, you see, encompassed two very important towns that we might know, the, recognize the names of. One is Bethlehem, the place where Jesus was born, and the other, Nazareth, where he grew up. When Jesus began his ministry, he lived in Capernaum in Galilee, and it was in Galilee that he performed his first miracle. It was in Galilee that he selected the majority of his 12 disciples, and it was in Galilee that he spent most of his time preaching and teaching and performing various healings and miracles. Jesus literally brought the light of his ministry to people who once lived in darkness. In a very backwater region, place where people who were generally considered to be from the other side of the tracks. See, the light dawned in the darkness. The ministry of Jesus made visible the presence of the kingdom of God in this world, and this is the light that Jesus brings into the darkness yet today. The shadow of death is dispelled by the light of Jesus' ministry. The dead are raised to life, the sick are healed, demons were expelled, chaos subdued, the ministry of Jesus reversed the curse. Now you may be asking, what curse? Go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and it talks to us about the story of creation. In chapter 3, we learn that Adam and Eve sinned against God by their disobedience and their desire to be like God, which resulted in punishment, not just to them, but to all humankind. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we read that the serpent was cursed, and the ground was cursed. And instead of paradise and everything being provided for them, Adam and Eve would have to work hard for a living. They would know pain and suffering and eventually physical death. That was the curse because of their greed and disobedience. But now Matthew is telling us that the coming of Jesus reverses the curse. The light has dawned in the darkness. Jesus makes the visible uh, makes visible the presence of the kingdom of God in this world. The shadow of death is dispelled by the light of his ministry. The dead are raised to life. The sick are healed. The demons are expelled. The chaos is subdued. Jesus' ministry reverses the curse. Matthew goes on to say, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those who suffered severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and paralyzed, and he healed them. See, it was the intersection of the words and the deeds of Jesus that boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God. Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom in the synagogue, and then he demonstrated it through his healing ministry. The phrase that Matthew uses, the good news of the kingdom, is quite significant. While he's referring, uh, we might think he was referring to the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is a common definition of the word gospel or good news among many in the church today. He's not. Jesus is not yet talking about that. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus does not begin talking about his death and his resurrection until after his tra uh, transfiguration in Matthew 16. 
and then only to a small circle of his friends. When Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom in the synagogue of Galilee, providing light in their darkness, he is not talking about his death and resurrection. He's talking about the good news of forgiveness and compassion and blessing and healing. It's the good news embodied in the very deeds of Jesus. It is the good news of his ministry. The good news is the curse is being reversed in the lives of people. You see, Jesus' deeds are themselves a parable of the kingdom. They are a witness to the presence of the reign of God. They are a reversal of the curse at creation. The miracles are not primarily about authenticating his messianic claim, though they do serve that function. They are not about, primarily about compassion, uh, though they do convey the love of God. The miracles that Jesus did were, was about hope. The hope of forgiveness, the hope of reconciliation, the hope of healing and peace and justice and life. Hope is the light in the darkness. And it is embodied in the presence and in the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. Because hope changes everything. It frees the captive. It releases the debtor. It gives life. The darkness is still with us. But the light disperses the darkness. And one day it will totally eliminate the darkness because the Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth and there will be no night there. So let's bring this hope, this good news down to where we live. I'm wondering how many of you here today feel like there's been darkness that has invaded your life. Maybe you've lost a job or lost a loved one recently. Maybe you've lost your health or some. there's been some unsettling happenings in your family. It's amazing how many, uh, how our problems can look really bad, really horrible in the dark. Maybe you've been through some humiliation or you feel like, you know, the people you work with don't really like you. Maybe you're carrying a stigma that was a result of some past failure or maybe you just made some poor decisions in your life. Whatever your situation may be, Jesus can bring hope back into your life. Our past memories don't have to be greater than our future dreams. It takes an outside source of light to light up the darkness, and that is exactly what Jesus did when he came at Christmas time. I'm inviting you to let the light of Jesus into your life today. Someone said, Jesus is the only light that knows no power failure. The Apostle John stated it this way, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. See, Christmas is about the triumph of light over darkness. Unto us a child is born. Those are words of hope. The light that we need to dispel the darkness in our lives and in our world today is not a program. It is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. I pray that we may always be people of hope as we live out the light in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are never overcome by the darkness. Even the darkest night is as bright as the brightest day to you. Thank you that as we walk with you, learning to walk in your ways and seeking your presence in our life, moment by moment, this darkness that we feel will dissipate and the night around us will be like day once again. God, thank you that you promise us that we will shine 
as you transform our lives and deliver us from all the challenges that we face in this world that seem to want to overwhelm us and even destroy us rather than being overwhelmed and destroyed, these challenges will be made good in your world with your light. And we will be stronger and we will be a brighter light for your glory. God, wash us clean today of all the darkness in, inside of us. Take away, take us into the light of your presence and radiate all the darkness out of our beings. I thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, who bled and died to give us an opportunity to be forgiven and cleansed. And so today we trust you as we stand in your presence, as we bow in worship, and are grateful for your generous, glorious love for each of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.